In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that they may be always truly wise, and ever rejoice in your consolations. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognising him. And he said to them, What is this conversation which you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since this happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and did not find his body. And they came back, saying that they had seen a vision of angels, who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things, and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He appears to be going further, but they constrained him, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread, and blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognised him, and he vanished out of their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour, and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven gathered together, and those who were with them, and said, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them, in the breaking of the bread. So we're in the 24th chapter of Luke, the final chapter of the Gospel of Luke, which is one devoted entirely to the resurrection appearances of Jesus. It begins in Luke 24.1 with the discovery of the empty tomb by the female disciples, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and that encounter takes us up to um, Luke 24.13. So we read... On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. 
but when they went in, they did not find the body. And then the women go and tell the other disciples, and then we read, Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home, amazed at what had happened. And so straight after that, in Luke's Gospel, comes this encounter we've just read on the road to Emmaus. And Luke is keen to emphasise that it takes place on that day. So we're on the same day, that same first Easter Sunday on which Christ rose from the dead, the same day on which the female disciples discovered the empty tomb. And if we go on beyond the encounter on the road to Emmaus to Luke 24, 36, the next passage is a final appearance of Jesus to the eleven, followed by his commissioning of them and finally his ascension. And we're told specifically in Luke 24, 37, that while they were still talking about this, Jesus appeared among them again. So it follows on immediately from where this passage, the story of the road to Emmaus, ends. Now, Luke, as a gospel writer, is very keen to give us timestamps. He wants us to know exactly when things are happening in this final chapter of his gospel. And specifically, he wants us to know that all these things are happening on the same day, pretty much one after another. And we might think to ourselves, well, of course he does. Luke's a historian. We remember Luke chapter one. We remember everything Luke was saying about investigating everything carefully from the very first and writing an orderly account for his mate Theophilus. You know, of course he wants us to know exactly when stuff happened. If he was around nowadays, he'd be writing those huge doorstop history books that people give you for Christmas and presenting BBC Two documentaries about history and so on. Yes, maybe. But remember, Luke, as well as being a historian, he's also a theologian. He wants to tell us not just something about historical events, but something about the eternal God. And not only does Luke want to tell us something about God, but God wants Luke to tell us something about God. Luke is writing a divinely inspired gospel. It's Luke and Luke's pen writing every word, choosing every word, but he's choosing them by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who wants every one of those words to be there for a divine purpose beyond Luke's human understanding. So the fact that we're told that this huge long chapter of Luke's gospel, all of its events, including its encounter, this encounter on the road to Emmaus, all happens on the same day, that matters. And we'll come back to that later. So that's where we are, Luke 24. Where are we? Where is this village Emmaus? Now, knowing what we know of Luke, we suspect it's going to be significant because Luke is keen on sacred geography, by which I mean where things are going on tells you something about what is going on. And we see this most clearly in Luke's mentions of the city of Jerusalem. Luke wants us to know that Jesus completes and fulfills the promises of the Old Testament, centred around Jerusalem, the holy city, and the Jerusalem temple, the place where God dwells among his chosen people. And how does he do that? Well, there's lots of ways, but one of the more subtle ones is that he begins and ends his gospel in Jerusalem. It starts with Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, receiving the prophecy that his son will be the forerunner of the Messiah in the Jerusalem temple. And it ends with the followers of that same Messiah, that same Jesus, that Messiah crucified, buried, raised new life, returning to the city of Jerusalem to preach the good news of the resurrection. Now, there are a few places that modern scholars think could have been the ancient village of Emmaus. And one of the options is a place very similar to what Luke describes 
It's a village about 60 stadia, so seven and a half miles, away from Jerusalem, along a road running northwest away from the city. There are some other alternative theories. There are There's a place that would have been 160 stadia, about 19 and a half miles, in the same direction. But either way, we're talking about somewhere that's quite a way away from Jerusalem. These two disciples are travelling away from Jerusalem. That's the significant thing here. Luke wants us to know that these two disciples were travelling away from the place that you might call the epicentre of salvation history, the place where the Christ was promised, the Christ died, the Christ rose again in accordance with those scriptural promises. They're walking away from all of that. And who are these two disciples? Well, one of them is named in the text, Chakul Cleopas, who is a disciple. He's not one of the twelve. He doesn't feature in any of the lists of the twelve disciples chosen to be apostles, for instance, in Luke chapter 6. But although he's not an apostle, he's clearly close enough to the inner circle of Jesus's very close followers to have received the news of the empty tomb pretty quickly. He can explain this story to, to Jesus, ironically, in quite a lot of detail. Now, some people argue that Cleopas is the same as Clopas, whose wife Mary stood at the foot of the cross in John chapter 19. We read in John 19, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. A historian of the 3rd and 4th centuries, a chap called Bishop Eusebius of Caesarea, claimed that Cleopas and Clopas were indeed the same person, and that this one person, Cleopas slash Clopas, was in fact the brother of St. Joseph, husband of Our Lady. But none of this is certain. We also don't know who his companion is. Some people speculate that it's his wife, but if it is, that raises the question of why Luke doesn't name her as the wife of Cleopas, given that Luke, among all the Gospel writers, is probably the most keen to give a prominent named role to women, to the female disciples. We come back to the fact that what we have been given by the Holy Spirit to know for certain from this passage is that these followers of Jesus, people who had put their faith, their trust, their hope in Jesus as their Lord, have now left Jerusalem. They have turned their backs on Jerusalem and all it represents in Luke's Gospel. And they turn away not out of hatred or animosity or anger, but simply because they feel dejected, abandoned, confused. They say they have no hope. They say, we had hoped. And it is here, on this road to Emmaus, that Jesus comes to them. And we can turn now to look at what this passage tells us about God in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the resurrection appearances are some of the most fascinating and mysterious passages in the whole of the Gospels. The resurrected Jesus is both known and unknown. He's able to be seen and unable to be seen. He is close and distant. He's not immediately recognisable to the disciples in this passage. Just as he is not immediately recognisable to disciples in other Gospels. I'm going to use the example of the Gospel of John, because it's believed John and Luke shared a source for their resurrection narratives. So it's useful to make a comparison. So in John, for instance, we read about Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Now, nor is he initially recognisable to the disciples in John chapter 21, who are out fishing. We read, just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. 
In both cases, it is when he speaks to them, speaks to Mary Magdalene, speaks to the disciples out fishing, that is when he speaks to them and they listen and respond that he becomes known. And it's also when they share the fellowship of a meal with him. In the case of the disciples fishing in John 21, Jesus says to them, come and have breakfast. Now we see the same pattern in the story of the road to Emmaus. For these two disciples, their hearts burn within them as they listen to Jesus expounding the meaning of the scriptures, and they know him as they participate in the breaking of bread with him. And this tells us something both about God and about man's response to God. Why is Jesus more difficult to recognise now than before his resurrection, before his rising to new life? Is it because he's more God and less human now? Is it because after his resurrection, he's sort of slipping further and further out of the reach of us mere humans and becoming more and more sort of spirity? Well, that can't be the case because the evangelists, especially Luke and John, are really keen to portray Jesus as physical, as embodied. In John 21, Jesus wants breakfast just as much as you do first thing in the morning, divinity or no divinity. He walks along the roadside with the disciples to Emmaus, just like they're walking. He has a physical gash in his side where the Roman soldiers thrust in their spear. And this is what he tells the Apostle Thomas to stick his fingers into in John chapter 20. The resurrected Jesus isn't less human than us. In his resurrected state, he is more fully human than we are. He's showing us what we are to be when we are entirely freed from the aberration of sin and death. So Jesus isn't strange and difficult to perceive in his resurrected state because he's less human than we are. In a way, it's because he's more human than we are. Because of the fall, because of sin, because of our lack of love, we are not all that we are meant to be as human beings. But Christ, God made man, is. There's a 20th century theologian I really like called Romano Gardini, who was a big influence on Pope Francis and on Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. And he wrote a very powerful book about Jesus called The Lord, which I very much recommend. And I'm going to quote a bit from you now. I know we don't usually give you quotations from works other than the Bible or the Catechism on this webinar, but, you know, it's quarantine. Everything's a bit different, a bit fluid nowadays, isn't it? Even in the convent. So Gardini says in The Lord, Resurrection is the second divine beginning, comparable only to the first, the tremendous act of creation. To the question, what is salvation? What does it mean to be saved? No full answer can be given without the words, the resurrected Christ. In his corporal reality, in his transfigured humanity, he is the world redeemed. In his transfigured humanity, he is the world redeemed. Christ is what we are called to be. But to bridge that gap of perception and understanding between Christ, whose divinity whose divinity becomes ever more manifest in his transfigured humanity, and the disciples in their own still wounded and still sinful humanity, a divine gift is needed, a divine help. And we see this in all the Gospels. None of the disciples in any of the Gospels perceive Jesus just using their bare, raw human faculties alone. And the evangelists all choose a different method for portraying this. Um, In Mark 16, for instance, You have the angel, the man dressed in white at the tomb, who says to the female disciples, You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised to life. So he tells them. In Matthew 28, the Great Commission 
of the Apostles takes place on a mountain, which is the traditional scriptural location of the revelation of God to man. We read there, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And in John chapter 20, in the passage I mentioned earlier, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, and she only recognises him once he has spoken her name. We read, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher. Notice also in these three examples, the divine help comes in the form of words of speech, which have to be listened to attentively and freely acted upon by those who hear. And this takes us really to the heart of what faith is. So the Catechism tells us two things about faith. Faith is two things. Firstly, faith is a grace, that is, a gift from God. And secondly, faith is also a human act. So we read in paragraph 153 of the Catechism that faith is a gift of God, a supernatural virtue infused by him. And the Catechism uses the example of St. Peter's profession of faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, to which Jesus declares that this revelation did not come from fresh flesh and blood, but from my Father who is in heaven. But then we go on to read in paragraph 154 of the Catechism that although believing is possible only by grace and the interior helps of the Holy Spirit, it is no less true that believing is an authentically human act, because trusting in God and cleaving to the truths he has revealed is contrary neither to human freedom nor to human reason. Now, a little bit earlier on in the Catechism, this human act of faith is talked about in terms of obedience, which is a bit of a dirty word nowadays, I suppose. To a lot of people, being obedient implies being sort of mindlessly subservient. I remember when I was a child, and I was a complete atheist as a child, I remember hearing the hymn Once in Rural David City, which has the line, Christian children all must be mild, obedient, good as he, and thinking, oh no, thank you, that sounds absolutely dire. Um... But the Catechism explains what obedience actually is. Obedience isn't something anti-freedom or anti-human. It's rooted in the free human act of listening to God. We read in the Catechism, paragraph 143, By faith, man completely submits his intellect and his will to God. With his whole being, man gives his assent to God the Revealer. Sacred Scripture calls this human response to God the author of revelation, the obedience of faith. And then we read in paragraph 144, to obey, from the Latin, ob audire, to hear or listen to, in faith, is to submit freely to the word that has been heard, because its truth is guaranteed by God, who is truth itself. I think we see something of this twofold definition of faith in this passage from Luke of the encounter of the road to Emmaus. So firstly, Christ draws near to the disciples. We read, he draws near to them. So the first act is Christ's. In other words, it's God's. And that phrasing, he draws near, puts us in mind of how Jesus describes the kingdom of God, that is, himself, God truly present on earth, in Luke chapter 10. In Luke 10, Jesus is telling his disciples how to go about their ministry of preaching, healing, 
the Fellowship of Charity, and he says, Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you, cure the sick who are there, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But then going even further back in the scriptures, going back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, which is talking about the commandments of the law, the law which Jesus perfects and fulfills. Deuteronomy 30 says, The word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart for you to observe. So these are two passages that spring to mind when Jesus draws near to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. God comes to meet man. And why? So that man can respond. And the response that man makes is the free choice to listen to God's words, spoken by his eternal word, capital W, his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. The free choice to listen and to act according to what they have heard, which the church calls the obedience of faith. Again, from the Catechism, paragraph 5-2, we read, By revealing himself, God wishes to make them, that's us, capable of responding to him, and of knowing him and of loving him, far beyond their own natural capacity. Next Sunday at Mass, we're going to have the Gospel of Jesus the Good Shepherd from John chapter 10. Jesus identifies the sheep of his flock in that passage as those who hear his voice and follow him. Now, the order of those ideas is important. When we respond to the gift of faith by listening to the voice of the shepherd, the Christ, by whom that faith is given to us, then we can recognise Jesus as our good shepherd, as our saviour, who welcomes us into eternal life. But in fact, there's more we can learn about God's revelation and about the obedience of faith from this passage. Jesus, we read, draws near to the disciples, a little microcosm of how God draws near to all of humanity in his revelation of himself. But that revelation doesn't itself begin with Jesus. It doesn't begin with the birth of Jesus in human history 2,000 years ago. We read in the passage that the words that Jesus gives the disciples, the words they hear and accept in the obedience of faith, are the story of scripture. We read, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. God's revelation has unfolded gradually over time. It is an, an entire history of salvation that doesn't begin with chapter one of the Gospels. It begins right back in the Old Testament with the successive covenants of the old law that God makes with his chosen people Israel. The loving promises that are made between God and Noah, God and Abraham, God and Moses, God and David, in order to bring them back into friendship with himself. The Catechism calls this the divine pedagogy. It's the divine teaching style. God knows, because he made us, that human beings don't happen all at once. We live within time. We grow and develop over time. So God reveals himself to us slowly over time, before he comes finally and definitively in the person of Christ. We read in paragraph 5.3 of the Catechism, The divine plan of revelation is realised simultaneously by deeds and words which are intrinsically bound up with each other and shed light on each other. It involves a specific divine pedagogy. God communicates himself to man gradually. He prepares him to welcome by stages the supernatural revelation that is to culminate in the person 
and mission of the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. And when we read the Road to Emmaus story, we read of God himself in Christ, revealing this Christ-centred meaning of the whole scriptures, the revelation of God stretched wide across human history. So this encounter on the road to Emmaus reminds us that God is a God of covenants, of loving promises by which he comes close to us, draws us closer into a relationship with him so that we may more deeply know and understand his plan for our salvation and freely respond to it in the obedience of faith. A plan for salvation that culminates in the one final definitive covenant of Jesus Christ the covenant that opens the way to eternal life for us and is inaugurated by his sacrifice on the cross. So where does the story of salvation go next after these resurrection appearances? What's the next stage of God's plan? Well, Luke gives us the answer in a sneaky sort of way by the fact, which we mentioned at the beginning, that he wants to emphasise that this entire chapter of his gospel, chapter 24, takes place over one single day. Luke never brings the day of resurrection to an end in his gospel. We, the reader, are left still on the day of resurrection at the very end, when we read that once Jesus ascends, the disciples returns to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. There's no sense of an ending to this day of resurrection at all. And that's because there isn't. As far as Luke is concerned, we the church, the body of Christ, are still living on that Easter day. That Easter day in which Christ, the risen Christ, comes to those who have faith in him through the reading of scripture, the breaking of the bread at mass, the forgiveness of sins, and the fellowship of love. When Luke describes the life of the early church in the Acts of the Apostles, he describes how the early Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, these four aspects of the lives of the first Christians, I've rejiggered the order slightly, but teaching, breaking of bread, fellowship, prayers, they correspond to the four sections of the catechism in which we find the content of our revealed faith. The first section, the creed, the second section, the liturgy, the third section, the moral life of, you know, trying to live with one another in, in fellowship. And the fourth section, prayer. And they are also all things that characterise the encounters with the risen Jesus on the Easter day. The Easter day that Luke tells us has not yet ended. The Easter day that is the beginning of the rest of time. And that we are still living in today as the church. We find these four aspects in the resurrection appearances to teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. And in case you're thinking, oh, Sister Carino is, is pulling these flighty far-fetched comparisons out of her hat again, the catechism itself invites us to think about how the encounter with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, the breaking of bread on that first Easter Sunday by which the disciples knew the Lord, is the pattern for the thing which is the source and summit of our own Christian lives, our own lives in the church today, the Eucharistic breaking of bread by which Jesus comes to us today. In paragraph 1346 of the Catechism, we read that 
the liturgy of the Eucharist unfolds according to a fundamental structure, which has been preserved throughout the centuries down to our own day. It displays two great parts that form a fundamental unity, and it names those two parts. Firstly, the gathering, the liturgy of the word, with readings, homily, and general intercessions. And then secondly, the liturgy of the Eucharist, with the presentation of the bread and wine, the consecratory thanksgiving and communion. And then the Catechism asks us a question in the next paragraph, 1, 3, 4, 7. It asks, is this not the same movement as the Paschal meal of the risen Jesus with his disciples? Walking with them, he explained the scriptures to them. Sitting with them at table, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. So that's the road to Emmaus the Catechism is talking about here. It's saying that that same encounter that the disciples on the road to Emmaus had of the risen Christ, the encounter in which their hope is restored and their hearts burn within them, is ours every day in the church through the sacrifice of the Mass. And actually, I think that in this time of pandemic, when the vast majority of us can't get to Mass, there's something else that the road to Emmaus can tell us, can teach us, about the presence of Christ among us today, in 2020, in this latest hour of the ongoing day of resurrection joy. Because the journey to Emmaus is not a happy journey for those two disciples, or at least it doesn't start off as one. It's a journey of dwindling hope. It's a journey of disappointment, of sadness, of mourning, a journey on which God feels entirely absent, entirely beyond their understanding. It's the journey of a people who feel abandoned by God, who feel like every certainty has been ripped from under their feet. It's the story of people who don't know what to put their hope in anymore. But it is also the story of two people who are accompanied by Christ on every stage of that journey, even when they cannot recognise him, even when they cannot know it. It is not the story of two people who find God again after he abandoned them, it's the story of two people coming to recognise, through the gracious help of God in Christ, that he was always with them, even in their blackest and loneliest moment. They didn't need to find him, because he'd never gone. The two disciples say to Jesus when they tell him the, the story of himself, not realising what they were doing, We had hoped. What a devastating phrase. What utter blackness to have had hope and then lost it. To feel that the thing you have, you had faith in, or the person you had faith in, has slipped so far out of your reach that they will never come back. What is hope? The Catechism tells us that hope responds to the aspiration to happiness which God has placed in the heart of every man. It keeps man from discouragement. It sustains him during times of abandonment. It opens up his heart in expectation of eternal beatitude. Without hope, believing in God, praying to God, trying to live a life of discipleship, all of this would just seem like a pointless burden, too heavy to carry. Now, perhaps this pandemic is, for some of us, a road to Emmaus. It's a time when we feel that we had hope, but don't anymore. We've, we feel that we've lost the things that used to sustain us in our faith, being able to go physically to Mass at our church and receive the Eucharist, 
you know, meeting up with our friends from the parish or Catholic friends from elsewhere to talk about the scriptures together. It may feel to us that God has left and that we too have no hope, nothing to keep us from discouragement or open up our heart in expectation, as the Catechism puts it. But what happens on the road to Emmaus? The disciples are talking together of Jesus and he draws close to them. And when they listen to him in the obedience of faith, their hearts burn within them and they come to recognise him in the breaking of the bread, which is itself an act of obedience. Christ comes to them in a way they were not expecting and could not have imagined. But when it happens, they are open and receptive and obedient. They say to Jesus, we had hoped. We can never say that. We as baptised Christians, as a part of the mystical body of Christ, we always have hope. Because it is one of the three theological virtues we receive in our baptism, together with faith and love. Baptism doesn't fade over time because you can't get to Mass. Baptism doesn't get rubbed off you. We've all received that gift of hope in baptism. And even when it's only burning dimly within us, it's still there, waiting to be rekindled. It can't be taken away from us. It's still there, waiting to spur us on, to make that human act of the obedience of faith, to listen to Christ, to know him, to recognise him, in whatever new and unexpected way he might choose to appear to us during this time of pandemic. Because really, the most fundamental thing we learn about God from this story of the road to Emmaus, beneath all that it tells us about faith and hope and the Mass and everything else, is that Christ is always with us on this long day of resurrection. He is always with us on this day of the risen Lord that continues on through his church and that will not end until the end of time. <laughs>